0: welcome to season two of the coalition for disabilities talk and disability podcast season one was titled queering ability this season is titled including ability i'm sarah shopper and i currently serve as the research coordinator for the coalition for disability with acpa student educators international today i'll be talking about chapter one it starts with you of the monograph with our special guest dr amy french associate professor and program coordinator of college student personnel at Bowling Green State University. Let's get started. This season's episodes are all about the monograph published at the end of 2021 titled, Creating Inclusivity While Providing Accommodations, a practical guide to champion individuals with disabilities on campus. You can find this publication for free at myacpa.org and I'll provide the link to it in the notes of this podcast. The two authors of chapter one, the editors of the monograph are the guests today. Since I happen to be one of those two authors, I'll be joining Dr. French for the conversation today. Amy, welcome to the podcast. I'm so thankful you were able to join me for this conversation.
1: Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. This is exciting.
0: As you know, I've already shared with our listeners the title of our chapter, as well as indicated our role as editors of the monograph. I think it'd be good for us to start out by discussing why we decided to work with the coalition to put the monograph together. I'll let you get started with that.
1: Awesome, thanks, Sarah. Um, yeah, so in terms of you know putting this monograph together, it, it came together during one of the national conferences and we, Sarah and I, sat together and talked about, you know, the importance of professionals in student affairs and faculty and students with disabilities, and really sharing, sharing, you know, the value that they bring, and also finding ways for allies to really learn more about ways to support individuals with disabilities, and really moving it beyond uh, conversations about students, but also to include educators broadly. And so educators being faculty, staff, students, as well as campus administrators, and, and potentially even beyond uh, higher education. From my perspective, it was really important to look at disability from a variety of lenses and a variety of contexts and environments and systems. And so that's kind of what brought us together to have this conversation about a, a monograph and then in terms of including the coalition, that seemed like a, a clear line of support. Uh, the coalition really, you know, having started in, I believe it was around 2000, really, you know, we felt like this would be a great service to the profession to team up uh, with the coalition and get something like this out.
0: Yes, absolutely. I will admit that I was a part of the coalition at the time. And so I think the natural fit for the coalition besides them providing a lot of support i sort of felt like i had an in because i knew the folks and i knew the conversation that we had been having during our directorate meetings at the conventions which side note are open to anyone mm-hmm. so um who might be interested reach out if you'd like to to join I knew that we'd been having conversations and I really think that what you said about um, not just focusing on undergraduate students as people with disabilities is key because we had been talking a lot about how do we help ACPA and help others in the profession understand folks with disabilities. And I, as a person with dis- multiple disabilities, but not having had them my whole life, I could see how I thought before prior to having any disabilities and how I experienced the world now as a person with multiple disabilities. And I can remember repeatedly thinking, oh my goodness, people just don't know. They don't know how to do anything to support and assist and be welcoming (laughs) to people with disabilities. It's not, I mean, I was one of those people who had good intentions, thought I was being super inclusive and, and open and certainly, you know, followed what I had been socialized to know as the rules for demonstrating that I'm comfortable with people with disabilities. But there was so much I didn't know that I didn't know. And so I can remember reaching out to you and saying, we've got to help folks and we've got to create something that provides resources that are practical and realistic for people to put into practice right away so that they can take what they're doing, add to it in easy to understand Comfortable, maybe after the first time they do it, ways to make their practice more inclusive. This, the theoretical, or only focusing on individuals with disabilities as though they're only undergraduates not as though you know forgetting that there might be people in our field who are disabled certainly faculty other staff anyone really who works at the institution or who might um, have interest in the institution um, could have a disability you know and and many people might become like me where they gain disabilities. In fact, actually, I think the statistics bear that out that most people will gain a disability at some point in their life. So, really having this desire of, hey, maybe there's something we could do to assist with that and at least have a starting point. And somehow or another, it became a monograph. I don't know where the word monograph came from or the idea. Um, necessarily for a monograph came together, but I'm pleased that it did. And I'm happy that it's out there.
1: Yeah. And, and I think one thing that, that I will, that I will contribute as well as an individual with disability. And so I think through our conversations with you gaining your disability and my uh, experience, just as, as always, you know, having uh, mine really, I think added some depth to our approach um, in regards to some of the chapters, to some of the pieces, because I'll be honest, as an individual with disabilities, you know, from, from an early age, you know, my worldview sometimes really just kind of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it cynical, but I would say sometimes my expectations have shifted because the world does not provide inclusivity uh, as a, as a priority, right? And so I think that's something that, that through working with the the wonderful folks uh, on the coalition as well as uh, the folks of the authors of our manuscript uh, really kind of helped me also work through some of, honestly, some of my own identity pieces because I think sometimes it it becomes a defense mechanism almost for me, and I'm only speaking for me, uh, to be like, okay, well, that's not inclusive or that doesn't work for me. And so I'll just go over here and do this other thing. But that's always one of those pieces that motivates me and challenges me to add uh, to the conversation. Right. Um, and I think anyone who knows me knows I'm not a quiet person. I'm a pretty goofy goofy <laughs> person and, and pretty rambunctious. And so I think that's an interesting kind of contradiction within my own uh, professional life uh, that, you know, I I did just kind of don't you know, navigate and move things, and sometimes without realizing it or
0: or vocalizing it because of the systems that exist, yeah. And I am one hundred percent in agreement with you that our world is not inclusive of disabled folks. I the way I say it, the world's just mean. You know, Will that turn me into a cynic over time? Am I already cynical and I don't recognize it? You know, I'm probably headed in that direction, but I can say that I've um, greatly valued our conversations because it's the two of us having acquired our disabilities when we did and that being different, it has just led to an eye-opening Rich discussion that I do think has not only assisted in our monograph, but led to what I'm very thankful for, which is a, a really good friendship. And we've talked about this a little bit, but um, I'll put it out there because the next question I was going to ask for us to discuss is about our experience with the monograph's topics. I know that I, for me, when we were thinking about putting something together, some of the the categories it was like, whoa, there needs to be something to help folks with this because there's nothing out there. And I will put out there an example of that is career stuff. So job searching as a person with disabilities, it's going to sound bizarre, but I didn't actually know that I could ask for accommodations during an interview. And some, another individual with disabilities in the field had to say to me, you know, Sarah, that you can ask for accommodations. I'm like, oh, because I'm having to learn that process and how to do that. Um, and and then realizing if I didn't have this and I and then, of course, looking for things and not finding much out there related to that, then there might not be, you know, I might not be the only person who wants resources like that. So some of the chapters, you know, I was a student, I have a student activities background. So the programming, Um, chapter on programming or assessing the environment. Those were chapters that easily came to mind for me. And then some of the other chapters were a little bit out of some, came a little bit out of some research you and I had done together related to the experience of newer professionals with disabilities in the field. And then also kind of thinking about, well, how can we holistically look at what we need to offer and make sure we've touched on a variety of areas. But um, a lot of it did come from personal lived experiences with different areas, recognizing how you phrased it as Sometimes I just am like, okay, well that I'll just go over here and do my own thing. Like, that's not for me in those moments, what's going on and what could we do so that we could assist that environment and make it more inclusive for folks um, who are disabled.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, Sarah, and I, you know, I think, I think about the ways that, you know, we can sometimes internalize oppression, right? And the ways in which ableism really does manifest in all these different ways about, you know, how we talk about disability or don't talk about disability. Um, and that includes, you know, within higher education as well as um, within society, right? And so, you know, I think as a person who's really um, passionate about social justice work, you know, I, it, it always stuck with me that it seems like the conversation about disability always kind of revolved around some type of legal compliance or uh, government, you know, influence versus like the people and the identities and the experiences yes. behind that. The, those aspects. And so, you know, I think for me as, as working together on this, I think it's been really a, kind of a beautiful process to really kind of extra, extrapolate the the various aspects of both humanity in some ways, right? As, as, I, as it is, and then also exploring the practical pieces. Because for me, as a as a community engaged scholar, uh, you know, I really want the work that I do to make a difference, right? to have some some applications right out of the gate, right. And so the way that we designed this piece, we we talked a lot about even the the order and the organization and and then as we continued to compile uh, materials and authors, you know our authors were bringing some just wonderful additional strategies and worksheets and tools that it was like oh my goodness we can really use this because I think I think one of the one of the things about championing individuals with disabilities. Is that there are a lot of small things that we can do every day to be more inclusive, and you know that that somewhat coincides with the concept of universal design. But I would contend that it even goes further than that, in terms of like what, how, how do I function as an individual, and then add on, Amy has a disability, so uh, or multiple intersecting disabilities, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I think I think that. That aspect was really important from the standpoint of how do we get the word out there that there are some things that we can just incorporate into our daily lives to support other people, right? And other people benefit from some of these small tweaks as well, but particularly thinking about individuals with disabilities. And so, you know, I think about in terms of the, the organization of the monograph, you know, we had a lot of conversations, Sarah, about which chapter goes first, chapter Mm -hmm. two or chapter three? Chapter two focuses on, is titled Ensuring Social Justice Includes Disability. And chapter three is titled Disability Defined, Thinking Intersectionally About Terminology and Experience. And so we really had some thoughtful scholarly discourse around, well, do we define disability first or do we establish the framework of social justice which is essentially setting the setting up the entire monograph. Mm-hmm. But then do we define disability first? Because without a clear definition, um how can we talk about it. How do we how do we get there? And so you know essentially I think we landed on the framework first, uh, because the definitions are also vast and and kind of complicated by some systems that exist, uh, as are the frameworks, but I th- I think the the disability justice model really was important um, to contextualize it holistically from the standpoint of including all the different aspects that we wanted to to discuss.
0: Yes, uh, those were some of my favorite conversations, us figuring out what order um, do we wanna put chapter two or chapter three um, first and realizing that either way would work, Yeah, I think also you had mentioned earlier working with the coalition. And I think knowing that the coalition would be very supportive of us working on this monograph, but also the coalition had really been talking about how do we take the Shortly before our very first conversation about the monograph that the strategic imperative for racial justice and decolonization had gotten published Mm -hmm. within ACPA, I can't quite remember the dates of things off the top of my head, but the coalition had been talking about how do we help folks see that there can be a person of color or indigenous person with disabilities and what that might mean in terms of their experience and keep the focus on that. I think the fact that we, at the time that we had discussions with the coalition and they were talking about that strategic imperative, it led us to use that in our call for authors. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out how to say, um, I know you and I crafted an invitation for folks to reach out to us if they were interested in being a contributing author. And in that call for um, contributors, we specifically said that we are really looking for that intersection between disability and, and I love the fact that we ended up putting multiple authors on a chapter. And I think that that was really important for us to do because I'm just a big believer that Uh, The more folks work with others, the richer the end product becomes. And I also think that it not only helps them to um, get to know each other, and many of them have indicated to me that now they have this colleague and this friend that's out there that they maybe didn't know before this happened. But I also think that it really was congruent with the disability justice motto. Nothing um, about us, without us, for lack of a better way of saying it, mm. because so many of our contributors themselves disclose through this podcast or through discussions have disclosed that they themselves have disabilities. And so I think that that's just a, a wonderful thing to have as an example for those in the field to see that you can be a contributing member of the community and have a disability, and make a difference in our field.
1: Absolutely, and I think I think another point about that, you know, in regards to the disability rights motto, "Nothing about us without us." A significant portion of disability research is conducted by individuals without disabilities. Yes. And so the intentionality that we that we had in the call for authors, as well as uh, just within. The work that we continue to do, our work is richer for it. You know, I would say that I'm. You know, I feel indebted to our authors for being open to the process that we set forth. Hundred percent. And and also that again, I think it's a it's a much much more authentic document uh, that also grapples with you know intersectionality and minoritized identities and the the manifestation of multiple identities. Because again, when we talk about disability. Often, able-bodied folks may interpret that to mean one disability, when in fact, an individual may have multiple disabilities that manifest in a variety of different ways. And also, my disability, uh, we may have, you know, we may share a specific diagnosis, for example, uh, but the way that that disability really uh, impacts our life may be different. And it also may be different based on other identities that we hold. Socioeconomic status, race, religion, et cetera, right? All of these things really do compound and conflate in a way that I think we really uh, were able to respond to the strategic imperative, uh, and also perhaps even expand it. Uh, I, you know, something that I'm I'm very cognizant of as an individual with disability is that society continues to normalize uh, poking fun at. Individual mm. disabilities, you know, yes. in social media, um, whereas some some identities no longer are socially acceptable to poke fun at, and nor am I saying that it's ever socially acceptable to do so, um, but I would contend that you know even in Disney movies still uh, there's the you know the image or the man the the creation of the individual on crushes being the the pun of everyone's joke. And that's just a a quick example that I offer. I think we have a lot of work to do. And I think that our hope and goal in utilizing the strategic imperative really was to share our story and celebrating the fact that our story also is the story of of many others.
0: Yes. And I know that we purposefully had an intentional conversation where we just said to each other, like, look at us. We're two white women. Mm -hmm. and we're absolutely missing things. So I loved working with you and being an editor for our authors. I will say that I greatly appreciated the support from ACPA. And I know that one of the other reasons we really wanted to work with the coalition and the association is because we knew that they would put our monograph out there and make it available. And if someone had, for example, a screen reader and the monograph wasn't loading properly and they needed it in a different format, ACPA has been wonderful to go through it and save it as whatever that person needs or update the file that's out there on, the, on their website. But I love the fact that graduate students, new professionals, folks who traditionally often aren't rolling in the money um, can acquire this information for free. And I love that you and I have a mindset of that's the kind of work that we want to do. As you said, the, we want to make a difference in our community. And I think that working with ACPA has really allowed us to do that. So it's not behind some wall where you have to pay for a membership in order to get access to it, nor is it something where you have to pay for it on its own. One of one thing
1: that I don't know that we've mentioned yet was we really designed these chapters to be freestanding as well? And yes. so I've actually uh, nerd level, uh, you know, free share here. I've even mentioned it during conversations with upper level administrators to say, oh, you know, you should really check out chapter chapter eight, or you know, on integrating disability into campus programming, um, or chapter seven, providing accessible professional development. Uh, I've actually mentioned that and sent them just a specific chapter uh, because we know that folks are busy and may not, you know, be as excited to sit down and read 10 chapters plus the appendices. However, you know, the resources out there and sometimes, you know, we designed it in a way where a well-intentioned person can sit down and read uh, a specific chapter on a topic of interest. Um, or, you know, again, they've, they've been, you know, a campus educator has been confronted with a specific scenario and hopefully they can sit down and read one of these chapters and come away with some tools or nuggets of knowledge that help them move forward and respond to that particular situation, or again, kind of transform some of their, um, practices. And so I think that's something that, that is really exciting about this also. Yes. Yes. Yes.
0: I think um, I will put out there that something that I am now um, passionate about related to accessibility, which is what the next question I was gonna ask you is if um, there's any specific way you can identify that you took something from this and have now incorporated it in your practice. Something that I have done, and of course I can't ask that question without knowing that I'm going to ask it of myself and I have to share, is that I am so ultra passionate now about making sure that wherever I am um, at, whenever there is a video being shown, and I've actually been in several professional development opportunities over the last several years in which I've spoken up and said, can someone turn on closed captioning, you know, at the beginning of a video or uh, is so small that it could be easily overlooked or really does that not need to be on you know they get in the way of being able to see something but the research bearing out that we all whether or not we necessarily need them we all benefit from having them on has been um, a good enough reason for me to ask for them to be on whether or not i know that there's somebody in the room who needs them And so to me, that has definitely transformed my practice and made me feel as though I'm a little bit of a um, advocate for closed captioning. And I love that in Google, you can do it in a gazillion different languages, although I recognize that the translations are not always perfect and it leads to giggling for different reasons. But I also really appreciate that because I know that not everybody's...
1: That offers the accessibility checklist, Um, I I incorporate that in my program coordinating role uh, with campus events, with campus planning, I share it with students, um, trying, you know, again, just making that a part of that event planning process, um, infusing that into the, you know, the multitude of checklists that we have when we're planning large scale events or small scale events. You know, oh, did, did we order the food? Okay, have we done this? Have we done this? What's the layout of the of the space? Those types of things. Those those are our lists that I would have had anyway, but then add to them the accessibility checklist, wherein you know I'm asking, okay, you know, what is the layout of the of the space? Also, how is it accessible, right? And so, um, you know, do we have enough seats for everyone? But also can everyone actually utilize the seats and spaces? Um, Another example that I have is in my my classroom, I try to create a space in which people can respond to their bodies as needed, right? And so my courses tend to be about two hours and 45 minutes um, in length, um, three hours on the schedule, right? Because there's usually a break in there somewhere, hopefully. And, and allowing people to get up and walk around and take wiggle breaks and take, take moments um, when their body tells them they need to do something to respond to that, as opposed to fighting it because we're socialized to, to sit in a space and be still and, and pay attention to class. Well, just because someone's wiggling doesn't mean they're not paying attention. In fact, they may be able to pay attention more because they're not fighting their body's response or a pain, you know, a moment of where they're experiencing pain or, or what have you. And so that's, that's another aspect. And then the last one that I would share would be um, related to the accessibility tool in Microsoft Office. Mm-hmm. And so checking the documents that I disseminate for accessibility. Mm-hmm. That's something that is accessible to, is available to everyone if they have Microsoft Office Suite. And I would contend that a lot of people don't know that it's there. And so that's a, that's a very easy go to my go to go into the, the option setting, click the accessibility checklist, and it actually walks you through step by step where there may be uh, an issue and you can resolve those. And it, and it offers suggestions on ways to resolve the issue to be more accessible. And so those are those are three things. And I think to your point about closed captioning, I also think about the microphone, the ever occurring conversation where, where a, a teacher, I being one, I do have a very loud voice, and yet I am very committed to using a microphone in spaces because it's not about the volume, it's about the the clarity, right, and the amplification. So When someone says, oh, I don't, you know, the mic may, may be off to the side or inconvenient, you know, not convenient for whatever particular space you're in, I'm always the one to speak up that says, please use the microphone, right? Um, And again, I've had that conversation with a Dean um, at a college-wide meeting and then followed that up by providing the monograph and a conversation about that. It problematizes that type of behavior, but also trying to to model appropriate, you know, accessible and inclusive behavior. because my, my small level of discomfort in perhaps hearing my voice amplified in a large room um, should not supersede someone's ability to actually engage in that environment, right? And so, so I think having those types of conversations, um, I've, I've utilized the, the manuscript in quite a few ways to again, engage in discussion, uh, but also trying to to demonstrate ways in which we can we can do better. And I'll, I'll, I'll be the first person to admit I can do better. Um, there are things that I, I continue to try to figure out how to incorporate. Um, and also things that may have just floated by me because of the privileges that I have associated with the specific types of disabilities that I also have. They would have some tweaks and some additional contributions to add based on a variety of other factors, right? And so. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that's, those are some of the practical
0: pieces, uh, that I've in, incorporated into my daily work. Wonderful. I absolutely would love to be a student in your class. Um, I have a left leg that sometimes likes to bounce up and down without me being able to do a darn thing about it. And I've had to learn to just accept it and go with it, but it can, um, Wiggle quite a bit. I love your use of the word wiggle. It's just fun to say, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it can wiggle quite a bit. And so I share that because I know that there might be some listeners out there who are thinking, oh my gosh, she really allows people to to do what they need to do for their bodies. That sounds so hippie ish, maybe they might think. Um, but there sometimes are things that are um, outside of the control of the individual. And you know, rather than um, drawing attention to it, it's just sort of making it normal that something might be going on and doing it from day one really then helps when those moments happen. I know it would at least help me related to what I shared so that when that happens, it's not a big deal. I'm just, you watch me. If you happen to see it sometime with me, I will often grab my ankle because it's the, and I I apply pressure because it's something my physical therapist taught me to do to try to calm my leg down. It's all I can do, but I'm still paying attention to what's going on because it just randomly happens. And so um, knowing that there would be a space like that, it's just refreshing. And I can kind of let go of a little bit of weight that I bring into spaces where I know I'm supposed to, as you said, maybe be socialized to sit there still and demonstrate how we've, um, historically defined societally, um, paying attention in a classroom, you know, you're not supposed to have something like that happen. And so there must be something wrong with Sarah, if her legs suddenly bouncing up and down and she must not be, Um, fully invested in this. And yet I love that example that you provided the microphone 100%. Although I will tell you that I sometimes think that the microphones that institutions provide don't assist with making this a normal practice, because the cord isn't long enough. And so everyone has to move to a certain location. And so I put that out there in case anybody listening happens to be involved in the tech area of their institution and, and or fiscal responsibility for any area, the cordless mics that can be passed around a little bit more easy to a room, can be very helpful. And so encouraging you to invest in that. And I love that you brought up what Microsoft Word has related to accessibility and the fact that our authors would edit things in their chapters. We knew going into this, that this was just going to be a start of some practical things that can happen in people's practice from a variety of different viewpoints. We did not at all think that this was gonna be the end all be all of how to do this and operationalize it and put it into practice. And so I'm really glad that you brought that point up because I don't think we've shared that yet. And so if, if you read one of our chapters and you think, oh, but this could be done now, especially because of the pandemic, so much has been accelerated related to technology so that people could connect in a learning environment that could now be noted in a chapter, all many of the chapters here and there that I love your examples of sharing different chapters with different people. I know many of our authors have shared that they've done something similar. And I know that I also have advocated for it in contexts outside of higher education. I do some work with a nonprofit in um, uh, in the city and I have advocated for some of the information within this document to folks in the community in which I live, because I see it as very important for when the city is doing programs on a large scale because they're community activities. They just call them something different, Um, but it's the same thing. And so I love the fact that it's transferable outside of higher education. And I think that kind of gets to another question I had, which was, If you could wish anyone to know the information in our monograph, who would it be and why? And I'll let you start with your response to that.
1: You know, I don't know that I have a specific person in mind, but I, I think I have, from a higher education standpoint, I think it's important that everyone on the campus understands, but I also think that decision makers and those who have, who allocate resources, understand what what is comprised within this monograph. and so i think my answer would be campus administrators as well as boards of trustees um, because you know so often there's a little bit of a you know removal from the day-to-day act, a significant removal from the day-to-day functions of an institution but really i think this could challenge and and problematize the 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 reception uh, or the perception that disability and accommodations is resigned to one specific office on a college campus uh, and potentially two depending on the campus. And so I I think changing that perspective that it it really is all of our work, right? As a faculty member, I can be the person that that supports my students in a specific way and and challenge them uh, to learn but also infuse some specific techniques that, that support their success. And I think a lot of campus administrators relegate that type of work to a disability resource center or the accommodations office um, and, and or compliance. And so I, I think that would be my answer. I think it's, it's really helping to get the word out there to campus decision makers that this really is a challenge to all of us mm-hmm. and not relegated to one specific office that may or may not be grant funded, uh, that may or may not be uh, run by one individual or two individuals serving an entire campus population. But in fact, some of these things don't cost money, yes. but the perception that they do in fact, inhibits our ability to be inclusive, right? And so I think changing that narrative across the board, but starting at the top is important. Um, And then I would, you know, turn that right around and say um, that I want my students to know and understand uh, because I teach in a college student personnel program and I want them to go out into their, to start their careers by championing these types of behaviors and modeling the way for, The future. Um, And so I I think it's an and both kind of situation that I want decision makers, but I also really want our future leaders um, to just move into their field with this type of information. There's my answer that doesn't answer the question.
0: You're welcome. No, it does. You just chose everyone. So you didn't leave everyone to know. Right. You didn't leave me too many folks. So um, yeah, I would underscore bold highlight. Yes, yes, yes. And um, the only thing I would add to accentuate from what you just said um, is folks with disabilities, specifically, not because I think they need to know this information. I I also don't want you to think that just because a person has disabilities means they know all of this. Because I, as Amy, um, you shared earlier in the last question we're all still learning this, you and I are, I think our authors would say that they are, but it's a a process over time um, to make our practice more inclusive um, and accessible for folks with disabilities. But I think that it's refreshing to know that there's something out there for an aspect of who you are that is designed to move the conversation beyond just, the disability resource center being responsible for all of this and so i would want anyone with disabilities to know the information not because they have something to learn although i think that's also a good reason for them to to get the monograph but because i think it could bring them a level of relaxation and, oh, okay, like someone speaking to a part of who I am and just the the comfort and support that comes with that when you have that feeling or that experience, I think can just be something that there's not a lot of that out there for folks in higher education, especially not faculty and staff with disabilities, as you were saying, for up and coming student affairs professionals. Um, there's just not a lot of that out there. But even undergraduate students, you know, seeing that there's something that's speaking to an aspect of who they are, I think can just be really powerful. And then with the way that we designed it and who our authors were and contributors were, I can't help but think that there's potentially some models of a whole wide variety that folks might be able to look to and be like, oh, look, there's someone else who's similar to me that's making it, that's contributing, that's doing something. I could be like that and having that example. And and I do think that the vast majority of us know how powerful those examples can be when you can find them. And this helps and make it makes it a little bit easier to be able to find them. I am gonna turn our conversation a little bit to us personally, and Amy, I'm gonna ask you if you could please share with us a little bit about your educational background and three words that you would use to describe yourself. Only three? I know. (laughs) Okay, so I went to
1: Kentucky Wesleyan College uh, for my undergraduate, and I got my bachelor's in political science, and that is in Owensboro, Kentucky, so Western Kentucky. And then from there, I moved to Chicago where I attended Loyola University Chicago and pursued a master's in social justice. And that's really where I found my roots in both social justice work, activism, community organizing, and the power of education. And from there, I found my way through some uh, professional ventures and career in um, program coordinating for lung health initiatives, and then um, eventually navigated my way into higher education, working in alumni and advancement at a small private institution, or actually several small private institutions. As many of us know in student affairs, if you're working for a small private institution, that means you're wearing a few different hats beyond just You know, alumni or uh, fundraising and advancement work, but I was also working with leadership with student leadership organizations and advising some specific organizations and uh, working with student initiatives. And so all along the way throughout this entire process, I was very much an involved student and I was working in student affairs and student government in leading campus protests in organizing campus events and leading uh, student groups. And so throughout this whole process, uh, it wasn't until I actually began my PhD that I learned really about the student affairs profession. And so it was through the PhD process um, at Indiana State University where I was really able to hone my my passion for social justice and uh, diversity and inclusion work and couple that with student affairs and higher education leadership work. And so that's that's the long and short of my educational journey. Um, but I really, I've really enjoyed the process. And I think I will continue that, you know, as a as a very uh, curious person, and that's one word that would describe me um, yep. that I think I, I don't know that I'll pursue another degree but I do have some specific competency areas that I would like to continue pursuing. Um, additionally, I would eventually maybe go to clown college. That oh. would be the, the next educational <laughs> endeavor uh, on my radar uh, because I, I wanna support folks with disabilities in, in some different and unique ways. Um, and so my second word would be fun. I think mm-hmm. I'm curious and I think I'm fun. I think the third word that, that I would, describe myself as, hmm, I, you know, I don't stick to the rules. And so I would say rambunctious and intentional. So I have four words. I was uh, going to say I, that's not three. I, I don't follow the rules there. That's one of my, <laughs> that's one of my challenges. But yeah, I would say curious, rambunctious, uh, intentional. And what was my, I had another one. I already forgot. There you go. <laughs>
0: Um wonderful. Thank you. So I, my educational background, and I think you know this. I'm actually not sure if you and I have had this full discussion in this way um, with such a structured question. I think it's kind of come out piecemeal as we've just talked about our past experiences. But I did my undergraduate at um Texas Christian University, TCU. And um so I'm a horned frog. And there I went into political science thinking I was going to be a lawyer, then couldn't fill out the application to apply to law school when the question was, why do you want to become a lawyer beyond, um, because that's what I've told people and that's what everybody thinks I'm doing. Um, and so that didn't happen. And that's when I looked around and thought, oh, these are all the things I've been involved in. I think I could do this. And I reached out to some folks on campus who were in the leadership office and the person who was working there that I had gotten close to was moving positions. And I thought I could apply for this job. And I learned then that there's degrees in the field and went, oh, well, maybe I need to pursue that. And so, um, you know, that it had to be a little bit more than just you were in it as an undergrad, so you can do it as a grad, um, it was kind of refreshing now to know that. And so I went off to Miami University in Ohio and got my master's degree there. And then I went and worked for a while. And um, in Virginia, I purposefully know that, and I mentioned Virginia because while I was in grad school at Miami of Ohio, I, you know, I'm sitting there in student development theory class and I'm thinking, this is all great and good, but aren't we phrasing all of this as though we ourselves are fully developed? And I'm not quite sure that we are. And it really, really um stuck with me. And um, my advisor said to me, you know, that sounds like a really good area for a PhD if you ever want to go on and explore that. And so she planted the seed in my head at the time, one of the institutions that she also planted a seed to my head to was the University of Maryland in College Park. And Virginia is real close to um, mayor of that. And so I knew that that might be geographically a location I ended up. And so I love the institution I was at. And the work I was doing was student activity stuff is just how I classify it, a variety of things. And so I went off to then, after leaving Virginia to Maryland, and I did go to the University of um, Maryland College Park, and that's where I pursued my PhD. And I did study the development of student affairs professionals and continue to be super passionate about that, which is very congruent with this work that we've done together here. And then I have moved into a wide variety of roles post that as a practitioner continuing on in student activities. I've done some consulting. Um, I'm primarily a faculty member now, but I absolutely love doing what needs to be done to make a difference in the community, which is all not one word. So the words that I've come up with are hard worker, think that that's one word. I don't actually think that it is, but I'm making it one word. And we don't follow um, the rules. that's what we do. don't <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, hard worker, and it is hard worker in the sense of I want to make a difference in the community that I live in and that I can impact. And then, learner, I would follow that with you know, lifelong, continual, always. I'm just a huge believer that I don't have all of it figured out by any stretch of the imagination. I'm continually learning new things and not just since acquiring disabilities, which has been its own huge learning process, but there is so much to continue to learn about in this world, the older I get. And maybe that's just the natural way that life happens for all of us, but trying to reframe sometimes when I'm frustrated with a experience And um, instead of seeing it as a challenge, seeing it as an opportunity to learn um, is something that I do. And I know it can probably annoy folks around me when I do that and verbally say it out loud and they hear it. But it is the reframe is very important to me to then be able to navigate through some of those challenges. And then the other thing I would say is that I'm quirky. So I am inevitably gonna do something that is odd or strange. And sometimes I'm amazed by it (laughs) or caught off guard by it. And sometimes it's just like the littlest thing. So in teaching class, sometimes I write on the board. This is just an example that's very random, but popped in my mind. Writing the capital letter G has been a full conversation I've had with students in terms of where do you start when you write the letter G and realizing that the way that I write it tends to be in the, um, I've found lesser, a smaller number of people who write it the way that I do. Just being amazed by the fact that that's just what I've considered to be The regular way that you would write a capital letter G, and not realizing that there's this whole group of people who (laughs) who learn that in a different way, and 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 that's just a quirky bit of information that I know. Again, as I shared, having this leg that sometimes is wonky and acts out, and so just embracing it and attributing myself to just being a quirky person and owning that—that's a part of um, how I am in the world, and. Yeah, those would be the three, the three words that I would use to describe myself.
1: Awesome.
0: Is there, I really have appreciated our conversation today, but before um, I close out our time together, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners about the monograph or our process for putting it together that we haven't shared? I think we've, we've, it's been a great
1: conversation, Sarah. And I, I think we've covered a lot of really important bases. I think the the one piece that I might extend, uh, maybe, maybe two points that I might extend out. One is that really it does start with us mm-hmm. and our work and the title of our chapter was intentional, knowing that it's an introduction chapter, but we wanted to give it a title because it really, we are all a part of this process and the actions that I can, the, the steps that I can take both to grow in my understanding of both my disability and recognizing that my disability is not expansive beyond my disability. Um, and that those sh- there are shared experiences and some crossovers, um, but that it does start with me to begin to to unpack the layers of my beliefs and thoughts about disability to then do that work um, both internally as well as externally. And so I think that's something that I wanted to, to point out that, that that was on purpose that we we offered that title because we've all got to start somewhere and sometimes starting can be the hardest part. And, and recognizing that, yeah, if we look at this monograph as a, as a whole, perhaps it is a little daunting. Uh, but if, if we start somewhere, and begin to challenge ourselves to think better, then we begin to know better, and then hopefully we start to do better, right? And and take action and, and change things. And so I think I think that's the the piece that I will um, the first point. And I think the the other the other thing that I would like to say a huge thank you to ACPA for offering us this space to do this work. Um, Alice and Mary's chapter that, that's titled More Than a Lapel Button, Disability Past, Present, and Future in ACPA really is an inspiring chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use that word very, very purposefully because I don't like really the word inspiring as it relates to disability. Um, that's a personal preference. But I think that this chapter is inspiring. In And I use that word because Alice and Mary's chapter demonstrates the collaborative effort and the community that came together to support and champion individuals with disabilities, both as uh, from allies, as well as folks within the community. And I think that is, to me, that's the inspiring piece. The inspiring piece is that the entire whole came together to support and champion this particular coalition. And I think I think that's, that's the celebration And for me, that's the excitement that that this monograph continues to generate is that ACPA remains committed to doing some of the hard work, to ask some of the hard questions, and and that we have the opportunity as members, as scholars, as practitioners, to continue to engage in difficult conversations, being well-intentioned, and trying on new approaches to enhance the work that we do and so I think I think that's the that's the last point that I would like to make that truly um it's pretty exciting to have some organizations out there that care about people to change to change the narrative
0: Mm -hmm. absolutely I agree with you in terms of thanking um those folks and um, I would only add to it. I just want to also um, reiterate that we are very, we very much feel indebted to our um, authors. And so we appreciate them um, reaching out and stepping up to be contributors to this monograph. It would not have happened without them it, as well as the coalition for the work they're doing to get the word out about the monograph. And finally, I am thinking that whoever's listening to this, whoever takes the time to read the monograph, I just want to say thank you for that because you are demonstrating that you're the kind of person who, I mean, this would be congruent with my one of my three words, learner. You're congruent, um, demonstrating that you're the kind of person who wants to continually improve and learn and grow. And I can't help but be very thankful for that. So I just want to say thank you for, um, spending some time with us today. And as well as to thank you, um Dr. Amy French, for joining me to discuss this um, monograph and our chapter. It starts with you with our um, so for our listeners to be able to listen to this. Um I greatly appreciate it. So thank you for taking that time today.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Shopper. It has been a pleasure. It's always fun,
0: yes. And if you haven't had a chance yet to read, Our monograph, creating inclusivity while providing accommodations, a practical guide to champion individuals with disabilities on campus. I encourage you to do so. The publication is available for free and can be found at myacpa.org. A link to the publication will also be added to the notes at the end of this podcast. I hope our discussion today was beneficial to you, our listener. Thank you for listening to season two, including ability of the Coalition for Disability Talking Disability podcast. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us wherever it is that you found this podcast. While you're at it, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to come back next week for a discussion about ensuring social justice includes disability. Until then, this is your host, Sarah Shopper, and don't forget to include Ability. This podcast was created by the Coalition for Disability ACPA College Student Educators International. It was produced, recorded, and edited by Sarah Shopper, including Ability is season two of the and Disability podcast for the Coalition for Disability.